Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 129. Uh, a lot of stuff to get to in this episode, but first I will welcome in uh, this week's co-host, Robert Hornack. Robert. Howdy, Tyler. How you doing? I'm doing well. <laughs> Why do you always laugh every time I respond to you? Because, ugh. Listeners, I do often wish that this was a video podcast and that you could see Robert's, Robert's uh, imp-like smile and just, uh, it's impish is the word I, I should have I'm, said. I'm very impish. Yes. Uh, but it always, it always makes me laugh. So, uh, so we're going to be talking about Dan Gilroy's Nightcrawler, but before we do that, I wanted to update everybody on the International Christian Film Festival in Orlando that I just got back from a couple of days ago. Um... First off, I do want to say thank you to everybody that uh, that donated or purchased the premium episode uh, as a way to help me recoup my costs for, for going. I had a really good time. It was a very interesting experience in a lot of ways. Um, I've only done one thing before where I've, I've sat at a, you know, a booth and that was at Alpha Omega Con, which again was a Christian related thing. And so, uh, but this was, this was notably different because Alpha Megacon is a convention, so people are regularly walking the floor and looking at the booths and all that sort of thing. This was a film festival, so there would be long stretches mm. of nothing because people are watching movies, and movies are long. Um, and so I would just be sitting there and be like, oh, yeah, wow, I guess I should read my book or something. <laughs> um, but enough people did come by, and I-, I was able to have the conversations that I wanted to have. Um you know, it was not at all unheard of for people to say that, you know, they'd ask me about the show. I'd say, oh, these are some of the movies I've talked about. And they'd be like, oh, that movie, oh, that has a little bit too much language for me. Mm. You know, and what I do like is that they said that had too much language for me, as opposed to they say, oh, we shouldn't be watching that. Right. Or you shouldn't be watching that or talking about it. It's a personal it choice. It was a personal choice. It was a function of conviction. That happened Basically, anytime someone said anything like that, they talked about personal conviction, and that was great. Uh, but then I also had a lot of people who said, you know, who really got behind the philosophy of the show and really admired it and really liked it. That's great. Um, the booth next to me was uh, a guy named Tim who was selling T-shirts, and he had brought his son along, who was about 16. His son's name is Tanner. And... Uh, and Tanner and I had a lot of good conversations. Uh, you know, it's, it's, I would say that Tanner reminded me of me, except his personality was not like mine, but his level of curiosity, uh, intellectual curiosity about things was, remi- that reminded me of me. Um, just 16 and like excited to, mm. to talk about any number of things, uh, movie related, uh, philosophy related, spiritually, you know, spiritual related. And, uh, and it was just really, it was really great. There were actually a lot of like 15 and 16 year olds running around and they did seem to gravitate towards me hmm. and just talk about stuff and ask about stuff. And it you was have a natural paternal air. It would appear so. I always assumed there was a grandfather quality to me, which is why young, like really young kids like hmm. me. Um, but no, they seem to, they seemed to enjoy it, and uh, and it was very flattering. But I will say, after a while, it's nothing on them. I didn't I didn't find them annoying, but three days of just talking Oof, with people yeah. almost constantly, I thought 
it's weird. There are moments when I'm very, when I can be very extroverted and moments when I'm introverted. And what I have discovered is that, uh, I do like talking to people. I like being sociable, but I also need a solid four hours of solitude of at the end of every day, yeah. which I didn't really get with this. And so by the time I got home, I was excited to just go back to work and sit quietly at my right. desk and just work. You know, the 15, 20 minutes of conversation after church every mm-hmm. Sunday, I feel like I've earned my Sabbath. I just go home and I do nothing. <laughs> I'm like, Woof. You just stare at the wall. Yes. It's like, I, I put in my time. Uh-huh. Um, and so uh, that was a lot of fun. And then, uh, but here's a, a story. And this is the takeaway for me from the festival. Um, so, okay. I, it was revealed to me only a few days before I left that, uh, I was going to be present because they have a ceremony, an award ceremony at the end that I was going to be presenting one of the awards. And I was like, Oh, what? And he goes, Oh, did we not tell you that? I said, no, you did not. And so I said, well, let me ask you this at award ceremonies. Like the presenter usually has, a, a you know, like 30 seconds to a minute to like, you know, say something. Uh, do I get that? And he's like, yeah, sure. Just try not to go over. I was like, yeah, no problem. So I, I decided to, so I wrote out a little something. I typed it out cause I didn't know what category I was going to be, pre- be presenting. So I figured I'd keep it kind of general and talk about award shows and how it's easy to get cynical about them, but they're also important because they acknowledge that quality artistic quality exists and is, and should be rewarded. So that was what I was going to say. And then the night of, I was, I saw that I was, uh, presenting for best screenplay. And as we've said on this show many times before, the screenplay is where things go wrong, mm-hmm. where things start to go wrong sure. in a Christian film. Um, you know, when we talked about do you believe, we said the acting was good, the, the, the directing was pretty good, it was shot really well, but at, at the end of the day, that script was tough. And, so I thought, well, here's my opportunity to address script issues. So I wrote something down. It's like, all right, I'm all, I practiced it to myself and I was like, all right, here we go. I got, we got something good going on. Then the ceremony starts. Story's not over yet. The ceremony starts and, you know, there are probably about 200 people there. And, um, and everybody's being very, positive, which is fine. It's an award ceremony. They, they should. And it's a Christian award ceremony, so doubly so. Um, everybody's being very positive and stuff. And I start to feel this uh, this thing just nagging at me. And I thought, when am I going to get an opportunity oh, no. like this ever again to talk to Christian filmmakers and oh boy, an audience that likes Christian film? Bully pulpit, suddenly. Something like that, yes. And it started to eat away at me and just nag at me and nag at me. And I immediately like, as I was sitting there, I had 45 minutes until it was my turn. I knew the order. And so I was sitting there working on what I could say, but thinking like, no, this is horrible. And, but it was, it just stayed with me. So I, I actually left the ceremony to call Jen and get her take. She was not, uh, she didn't answer the phone. And so, I then called friend of the show, Jason Eakin, mm. who I often have um, these kinds of who shares these frustrations. And so we talked through some stuff and we prayed together on the phone and all that. And, it would, you know, he gave me some some good uh, ways to make it diplomatic. <laughs> and uh, and so I decided, all right, so 
I went through basically two different speeches until I got to the one I was going to say. And so, um, and I should say part of what, what got me was earlier, one of these, uh, 15 year olds I was talking about is this girl who works for like a Christian radio station or something like that. And she reviews movies for them. <laughs> and, uh, she specifically reviews Christian movies and she had told me that her boss or producer or whatever you want to say, um, had told her that there are certain movies like, no, 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 you can't say that about that movie. And she said, why? And she said, well, because, um, you know, we're doing them a favor trying to like get the word out. And mm. so I told this girl, I said, that's not a good thing, by the way. It's like, you're not a publicist. You're not a hype machine. You're a reviewer. So you need to be honest. So that was the thing that I had said. And so the the idea of being honest was bouncing around in my head, mm-hmm. and that was kind of what was convicting me about journalistic integrity, something like that. So I finally went up, and uh, they have a big, they have a, right now. They have a big photo of me up there with Tyler Smith, host, more than one lesson, and uh, this woman with a very booming British voice uh, announces you. So I went up and I made a, I made a joke initially. I said, as one should, yeah right before the stuff comes um i made a joke in which i said hey if ever if ever you need an ego boost might i suggest standing next to a giant photo of yourself people laughed good then i referenced then i said has anyone ever seen citizen kane there you go fewer laughs which is off-putting but that's all right um and then i i basically led with so the other day i was uh talking uh to a, a young girl here who uh, reviews movies, and I talked to her about how important it is to be honest. And so, in the spirit of that, I'm going to be honest for a, a moment. Oh man! And I said, so for a, and by the way, after a while, this became a blur. So I don't complete because I went off. I kind of went off my off script a little off bit. Page once. Uh, once I got. Once I saw how the audience was reacting, I kind of went off. Yeah. Off track a little bit, and so. Um, so I basically led with, so for a long time, Christian film was very, very bad. And people chuckled a little bit. And I said, and rather than make better movies, all we did was make excuses. We talked about the director's intention mm-hmm. and use that as a smokescreen for uh, laziness, basically. And I said, we've gotten a little bit better, but we still have a long way to go. And I, frankly, I think a lot of us still make excuses for Christian film. Uh, people, people applauded at that. Mm-hmm. And so... And it's like, okay, people seem to be okay with what I'm saying. And so I kind of just kept going and said that, and this is, this next thing was, is something I had worked out with Jason on the phone, basically saying that, uh, you know, as Christians, we're not supposed to make excuses. We're supposed to recognize our flaws, be open about them, and then try to make them better. And I said, of course, we're not always going to succeed, but that is no excuse for us to, to get back to film, to not make the best possible film that we can and then right. that got a lot of applause mm-hmm. and stuff so and far so, so good Talk so far so good and you know it, it turned out to be a great thing from then on like uh you know i then brought stuff back around to the script and i i said something that was so cheesy but boy they loved it where it doesn't bode well early on i know but you know what it's it's still a thought that i had and so uh early uh there was a pastor who went up to um at the very beginning of the ceremony and prayed for everything. And he used the word scripture. And I realized like scripture, Hey, script is in that word. That's interesting. And so I, I cribbed something from my writing 
my, my script speech and brought that into this because I wanted to bring it back around to the actual category. And I said, uh, I said, you know, it's interesting that the word script is in scripture because as scripture is to, you know, scripture is to our faith, what the script is to the movie. Hmm. People were like blown away at the, at me saying that. And, um, and I don't mean to like be self-aggrandizing right now because to me that it's like I was not expecting the reaction. Hmm. I wasn't expecting a real a super negative reaction to this. Um, but uh, anyway, so I announced the winner and uh, he came up and I left because I felt I felt bad because I felt you know I certainly felt like I was upstaging the winner. Um, but uh, as I left and I walked down the aisle, like a couple of people like held up their hands to like give me five. And, uh, so then when I, when I exited the, the, it's not, th- not a theater, but like a ballroom. Uh, when I exited that, like I had like some Facebook friend requests already from people, hmm. which was strange. Um, and then a bunch of people came up to talk to me afterwards at the table and all that. I got a lot of cards from producers and distributors and stuff like that. And it was like, it was great. It was everything that I wanted it to be. Um, I do feel bad that I, I, you know, I feel like I upstaged the actual winner and, and so I feel like I made it a little bit about me, but, um, but nonetheless, um, there is a, there is a possibility that I will actually be doing like a talk at next year's festival, like a 45 minute talk, um, which is very, uh, in which I'd be talking about, uh, critical thinking Mm -hmm. in, in, in approach to film. So that was, that was great. And that was the last night. And, uh, I have to say, Tyler, you surprised me because the way you set the story up was like it was going to crash and burn around you. Like oh, you, I thought it might. Like you accidentally got the girl fired or something from her radio <laughs> job. It's like, what? But it's all, it was good. It sounds like it was all very yeah. It, it turned it. out great, and and honestly, like, and then I felt like eh, people sure are applauding a lot. <sighs> it's like I didn't hit hard enough, you know. <laughs> but like, it's I, I literally was not going to be happy with anything. If sure. people had just booed, then it's like ah, people aren't listening. I better leave. Yeah. Um. But then people responded very well, and I, I'm I still get you know a few days later I'm still getting emails and tweets from people. Yeah. Do you have trouble uh, accepting praise? Yeah, yeah, I do. Well, like I do. Yeah, like I would I would accept a boo over a, a, an applause quicker. I think I probably would just too. like I do with like any of my writing. Like I think I may have even talked about this on on the podcast before, mm-hmm. but to receive praise, just blanket praise, like, oh, this is really good. I, mm-hmm. you know, I really thought the writing, the dialogue was great and the characters were compelling. And yeah. I'm like, and, and, and what, and what, what's wrong with it? And yeah. when no one want, when they don't want to give me, I, I just don't believe it. Yeah. But when someone says this was okay, yeah. here's what I would do. I, I'm like all ears. I'm yeah. like, people won't lie about, by the way, we are getting into like deep human, like a deep seated philosophy I have that has basically made me miserable for a good portion of my life, which is I genuinely believe that people won't lie about something negative. If they, hmm. they'll lie about something positive, especially in the Christian community, they'll lie about positive. They'll say, Oh, that was very good. I thought this and this and this. And they can be lying through their teeth because they want to make you feel good. Cause sure. that's a, that's a good thing. A virtue is to, you know, make someone mm-hmm. feel good. Uh, but no one will ever lie and say, Oh, that was, th- that dialogue was bad. Like, even though they think it's good, they would never say it was bad. Like, it, it makes no sense. They benefit nothing to do that. Well, the only place that could come from is, uh, insecurity or jealousy. Sure. Like, if I think somebody else is better than me and I sure. want to make them feel worse about themselves, I can say, well, I'm not so sure that this is working. And here's why. Here's what I would do. And then that makes them feel kind of on guard. I guess there is that, yes. But I feel like even then there would be, it would be rooted in honesty. 
Sure. I don't know, but maybe it's just because I only recently watched Amadeus and, uh, <laughs> it's, and it's on my mind. Um, We're all Salieri, unfortunately. Oh, boy, oh boy, that thing. Anyway, uh, yeah, so I had a hard time to, and there, there was a woman who came, I think she was one of the, there were two like MCs of the ceremony. I think mm-hmm. she was one of the, one of those. And, uh, I didn't stay for the ceremony that much. Like I was in the hall, like practicing what I was going to say and like mm-hmm. fretting over it and praying about it and that kind of thing. Anyway, so she came up and, it was very complimentary and I didn't accept the compliment. I said, ah, I think I might've diluted it with too many oh, jokes. Oh, sure. Yeah. You downplay you know? yourself. And, um, and then she said something that I've never heard before in regards to me. She's like, you, you're, you're anointed. And I was like, Whoa. I was like, I, How I didn't say this. I didn't say this, but I was like, I don't, I'm not a hundred percent sure what that actually means in re- certainly in regards to me. And so, uh, but yeah, it was a, it was a really great experience. I was very, you know, um, anointed i was i was anointed apparently Hmm. um and i felt you know and i felt good about myself that lasted until the next day and then i crashed hard in the same way anytime like back in high school anytime i was like in a in a play Hmm. and it did and it went well and i was very and i was like okay i did pretty well there the next day i would just emotionally just completely i was just demolished where where does that come from what what does that mean Uh, i do think some of it has to do with adrenaline like just kind of you're, you're hyped up and then You'll just there's you know. a, a straightforward physiological reason for it, but there's also a psychological thing oh, that I know that I'm very absolutely. familiar with as well, which yeah. is keep I can, yourself humble. I can never live up to that again. I can't do that. I'm not. <laughs> and my life is peaked. Yeah, or I, I what I just did was an accident. That's not usual for me. Yeah, and don't expect it again, please. Yeah. And then the 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 very thought of someone expecting that of me again is terrifying. Yeah, and then I yeah I do it. Yeah. Do. Oh, if I go back and give this 45 minute talk, it's like, phew. A minute and a half is a lot easier than 45 minutes. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, um, but by and large, so that's, a, you know, those are my own insecurities. By and large, it was a really great weekend. I got to meet a lot of people. That's great. Um, and, uh, met some people that, some notable actors that might be on the podcast Whoa. sometime soon, Ooh. which is very exciting. Um, no spoilers here. No spoilers. Cause I don't want to disappoint people if it does, if it doesn't happen. Gotcha. Um, I'll tell you off my, uh, I, I'm in, I'm the audience too. I just want to be surprised. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, but yeah, so, and I'll say this, you know, uh, I was going to be going to the, the film fest either way, but, uh, everybody's generous, uh, donations and, and contributions, um, help to lessen the blow a little bit financially. So I do appreciate it. Uh, you know, those of you who, who helped out, I really appreciate it a lot. So I don't think I did. Sorry, Tyler. It's not too late. That <laughs> premium episode's still available. There you go. Yeah, I'll do it. Um, so I'll send it to you for free. You don't have to worry about it. You, you helped out enough. Um, don't say, that should be off mic too. Oh yeah. Oops. Um, Robert's my boss. I should specify that <laughs> he, he bankrolled this whole thing. So, um, there's certain films I tell Tyler not to put down. Right, yes. I'm that guy. Yeah, it's like we uh, don't talk poorly about Gone Girl. You know, exactly. Fincher's all over me. Um, so, uh, so we will move on. Uh, that, of course, took a while. I'm sorry, everybody, but hopefully, you found the stories uh, entertaining. Um, so, we will move on to the the topic proper. Um, we'll be talking about Dan Gilroy's Nightcrawler starring Jake Gyllenhaal, Rene Russo, Riz Ahmed and Bill Paxton along with uh, a few others, but those are really the main, mm-hmm. the main cast. So, uh, a little bit of background. Um, 
I had no expectation for this movie. This was a movie pass movie, which is to say a movie that I wasn't that interested in. I, I was, I was, I was intrigued by, but mm-hmm. <clears throat> had I not had my movie pass, I might not have seen it in the theater. Sure. Uh, but, uh, so I went and saw it with Josh just uh, on a random night and I loved it. It wound up in my top 10 of last year. I responded so positively. You know, a lot of what it's doing as far as like skewering the media, which is what everybody focused on, um, a lot of what it's doing is has been done before. In many cases, years ago, like mm-hmm. in network and, sure. you know, facing the crowd and that kind of thing. Um, Ace in the hole. Ace in the hole. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. Ace in the hole and facing the crowd. Watch out. <laughs> and network. Now well, that doesn't really mm. fit. But um, so... So as far as that goes, yeah, it's not really doing anything new. But to me, what I really responded to and what basically everybody responded to is that main character uh, played wonderfully by Jake Gyllenhaal. Mm-hmm. And I think that and, well, anyway, sorry, I'll get to that in a moment. Um, and just, you know, I feel like we've seen characters like that before. In fact, in the in the in today's companion film, like the the character of Lou Bloom reminded me of of Daniel Plainview. Mm-hmm. And so and, and a few others um, just blind ambition and sociopathic tendencies and that sure. sort of thing. So, uh, but I thought it was just like, you know, his monologues are just so beautifully written. Uh, I thought it was gorgeously shot by, I believe Robert Ellswit, right? Yes. Same guy who did, who did there'll be blood. And so, uh, and I'll say this, and this is kind of a silly thing, but as a Los Angeles resident, mm-hmm. um, specifically somebody who, uh, lives at night, a lot. I'm usually up pretty late and I will sometimes drive around or like go grocery shopping or something like that. Um, I do love Los Angeles at night. Um, and this is a film that kind of celebrates Los Angeles and sometimes, you know, and they're driving around the Valley a lot. I'm like, mm-hmm. Oh, Hey, I, I yep. know all where all those places are. I'm, I frequent Studio those City places. Plaza, I think was in the background. At yeah. One point. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, it's just a film that I really liked. No, I'm sorry. I loved I genuinely loved it. It's one of the few movies. At this point, uh, I don't buy movies the way I used to. Um, you know, it used to be that I would buy like 10 movies from a specific year. Um, or maybe even 15. Now, it's I try to limit it to like five. Like these are the five that I feel like, not merely that I loved, but movies that I feel like I will return to sure. over and over again. Or that I will lend out to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like, you know, The Babadook, Whiplash, Birdman. I've not seen, what was the first one again? The Babadook? Yeah, I, I didn't even know how to pronounce it, but I, I want to see it. It was my favorite movie of last year. Was it? Yes. I, well, I, I definitely want to see it. We should watch it. I'll watch it anytime. Will I, is it frightening? It is. Will I leap into your lap? Screaming like a little girl? Gosh, I hope so. That's why we're watching it together, right? <laughs> hmm. Just to, you know, I just, that's the modern equivalent of just, you know, you like squeeze, holding onto my arm uh-huh. real tight. Right. Um, so, uh, but yeah, Nightcrawler was definitely one. It's like, I feel like this is a movie I want to revisit. This is a character I want to revisit. This is writing I want to revisit. Yeah. And it was just, uh, I was just very, very pleasantly surprised by a movie that I thought would be like a two and a half out of four star movie. Um, and it, I think it was number one that weekend. I like, it really, it caught on with people that I, and I, and I like that. And I think, I, I definitely think it changed, it has changed the career of Jake Gyllenhaal. Um, he was kind of, in the last few years, he's moved into sort of character actor territory anyway, Mm -hmm. but I think this solidified it 
that, oh, right, yes, he is a good-looking guy, but the bland lead role is not for him. Yeah. He's like Johnny Depp in that way. Um, good-looking, but then does his best work when he's being very strange and idiosyncratic and stuff what like that. What else has come out in the last few years? Uh, I prisoners. didn't see Prisoners, but I hear he's great in it, and he's kind of it's kind of a twitchy performance. Yeah, that seems like a show we, we should talk about on the show. I, I've, been t- I've been told that. Yeah. Uh, I don't have the time. Very intense. I haven't had the time to watch it. Yeah, I know it's, it's like rough. two and a half hours. Um, and I need. I think I need to prepare myself emotionally for it. Yeah, it's pretty heavy. Um, but also in <laughs> Zodiac, you know, that's a right. lead role, but even not, it's not like a heroic role by yeah. any stretch. Like he's, yeah. there's a, he's kind of a, twitchy paranoid obsessive yeah. guy in that there's as enemy, well which i haven't seen i didn't see enemy i heard it was great yes uh apparently there's a lot of spider imagery in there Uh-oh. and uh i uh i've been talking about this a lot with people lately but uh so i regularly have what i call spider nightmares um you can figure out what they are they're nightmares where spiders are uh featured prominently and uh i'm terrified of spiders as people should be as we've said, as we said years ago, if you're not afraid of spiders, you're not paying attention. Mm. They are monsters. They're spawns of hell. They kind of are. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I forget who I was talking to the other day, but basically, uh, let's say you and I are making a fantasy film mm-hmm. and we need like a big, just a monstrous creature, but we want it to be based on like an existing creature. So what should we do? Well, we've got two options. We can either have a giant snake. Or a giant spider. Those are usually how it goes. Right. One or the other. You look at Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter. What do they both mm-hmm. have? Giant spiders. King Kong. King Kong has it. Yeah. Watch out. See? They're monsters. Anyway, because of that, I don't know if I can watch Enemy uh, hmm. based on what I've heard. But I but I think I might watch it anyway. Just because, you, you know. It's the, the same guy that made Prisoners, I believe. Uh, that I don't know. Um, we should watch, what is Bat- Batadook? The Babadook. The Babadook and... Uh, enemy An enemy on the same night. <laughs> Let's do it. Oh, this is going to be so much fun. Let's do it. it look, it's been decided. All right, we're doing it, we're doing it this weekend. Uh, Come on over. My, my wife is out of town. Uh, if you want to join us to watch the Babadook and Enemy, which I assume will work out just fine. I'm sure you, there's no one you need to talk to about uh, no planning this out. No. Um, anyway, so yeah, I'm actually excited to see where Jake Gyllenhaal's career will go mm-hmm. as an actor because I and we'll get into the specifics of his performance in a moment. But uh, so that's and there's a lot of other stuff I liked as well, which we'll get it more into. But by and large, it's a movie that I just loved and really. I w- it's hard to say if it blew me away. It blew me away by as a function of my expectations being low. I'm the same way. And can so. I say that I, I did not plan to see it either. Okay. All right. It's not even that I didn't plan to see it. It just wasn't on my list of things I wanted to see right away. <clears throat> but I got the screener for it. And I was mm. like, well, there's no excuse anymore. So I watched the screener. And I was watching it at work. So in between things I was doing at work. And I, I couldn't – I'll even admit it now because uh, – for various reasons, I may not be going back to that job. Watch out. Um, I would actually curb my work to continue watching the movie because it's, yeah. it's, it's an extremely engrossing movie. Um, and like you said, mainly because of his performance. Yeah. But <clears throat> it's a very good movie. I was, And my reaction to it was the same as yours in that I was – I didn't have high expectations for the movie itself. I had heard several people say that they liked – his performance, and then mm-hmm. it was one of these sort of trans transformative sort of uh, yeah. performances where he just looks totally different from anything else he's ever done, yeah. that kind of thing. So I was curious about it, and then the fact that it came in the mail was like, there's no reason. So I watched yeah. it, 
and I loved the the satire of it. You you mentioned already that it's it's been done before. Yeah. Um, in network and other movies, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of uh, another movie that seems to come up a lot in like the reviews for it, which I did not read then, but I read before today. I seem to mention a uh, uh, taxi driver. Oh yeah, there's, there's, sort there's, of some, there's a lot of that. I can uh, see comparison, that. which is not a, it's not very a very good comparison. No, I think it has more to do with just like the loner driving the city at night, right. um, you know, and trying to find validation. But I feel like that doesn't bear itself out that much. Well, exactly because I mean, Taxi Driver is, is so much about loneliness. Yeah. And this movie is not about that. He has no feelings of loneliness whatsoever. He yeah, just he doesn't, does what he does. He doesn't need other people. He doesn't, he doesn't like other people. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Um, so he says. Um, and also that movie, uh, Taxi Driver, does not, it doesn't carry a satiric tone to it. It's much right. more straightforward. Let's look at this man. It's almost like a novella. Yeah. Um, let's just look at what happens and how people treat him and how he reacts to that and how he yeah. wants to change his situation. Yeah. And, and I feel like the uh, one thing that certainly as Taxi Driver goes on, I think Travis Bickle becomes more distinct. But I think one thing that the film makes the argument for is that there's a million Travis Bickles in the world yeah. and, and maybe even in one city. Like there's yeah. an anonymity there that, that creates a sense of loneliness. And this is just one guy, but there's, you know, millions of them. I don't think you would ever watch Nightcrawler and think, oh, there's a lot of Lou Blooms out there. Right. Like, he's a he's a distinct character. That's kind of the ultimate point I was going to make about the comparison between those two movies, is that the the way that Taxi Driver is written and performed and the attitude of Scorsese toward the character is t- com- so completely different from this movie where uh, the comparison falls apart because you feel like that Jake Gyllenhaal, or his character, while it's incredibly well rendered by him, mm. uh, is not a real person. Like someone that behaves that way consistently will make so many more people just kind of mm. back off, and he would never get as far as he did in the movie. Therefore, I saw your eyes raise, yeah. eyebrows raised because they do, but they don't. Sociopathic people are people who don't care about other people or have no feelings about who they hurt on the way up. Let's say um, hide it better than that. Mm-hmm. And they get away with more because they're charming. It's it's more the, the uh, American Psycho kind of guy. Sure. Um, as opposed to this guy who's just with the bulging eyes and the way he walks and the way he carries himself and the things, the paragraphs of pre, pre you know, thought out, you know, patter. Yeah. Uh, self-help patter. Yeah. You know, is is just not believable that, that someone like Rene Russo's character wouldn't go, you probably need to walk out of here right now and never come back because you're creeping everyone out. Yeah. Um, so you have to, or I found myself approaching the movie from like maybe about 15 or 20 minutes in differently than if it was a Travis Bickle, because it becomes so obviously, uh, uh, a point movie. It's like the, the point of the movie is what the movie is. It's not yeah. about following a character or seeing what he's doing or how he reacts to other people. It's more about the message of the movie. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's kind of a bummer in a way because I mean, because it has been done before, it feels like, why do this again? Yeah. So, I mean, that would be the only down thing that I would say about the movie because it's otherwise very good. And I think, yes, it is definitely, uh, the performances are heightened. Like, I don't think this is ever meant to be the reality that we live in. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
it's supposed to yeah, it's supposed to be similar to it, but at the same time, yes, I think there's definitely a satirical element to it, which means everything will be a, a little bit heightened, and and I'm okay with that. I I'm fine with it telling that sure. and and this character being what he is because yes, uh, a sociopath will not have a traditional arc uh, in a movie, um, and what I like about it is that it's a film very much about. I think more so than any kind of media thing, I think it has more to do with just general, as the theme we'll be, t- be discussing, I think it has more to do with general ambition um, and a certain type of culture that you will find in the U.S. And mm-hmm. more and more there are movies being made about this. And at some point over Battleship Pretension, we're going to do a whole episode about it. Mm-hmm. Like Just movies of, I would venture to say, sort of the Obama era and – you actually find a lot of movies that are very, very skeptical of capitalism. And I don't mean to say that that comes as a function of the president, but more and more you hear like the 1%, you hear like sure. anti-corporate culture, you hear about, you know, more and more that is happening. And so, and I think people are putting the blame very much on capitalism and the idea and the the greed that comes with that. And I think if you look at a character like Jake Gyllenhaal in everyday life, of course he wouldn't do well. And you see him early on, he's a failure. Mm-hmm. Then he finds the right culture. He finds a culture that is notably, that is known for its ambition, known for its monsters, and basically people that only think in terms of how they benefit. In that culture, they still don't like him, but they don't like anybody. They don't like, there's a sense of competition, there's mm-hmm. a sense of all these things, but ultimately it's, Yes, I don't like him. Yes, he's a total creep, but he did get me some good footage. He's got something I need. He has something I need, so I will deal with him in that respect. And so it's, you know, and people would say that that is the general concept of a free market, uh, Mm -hmm. free trade culture, which is, and if you've read any Ayn Rand, it's this idea. It's like, yes, I'm I'm working with you, not because I like you, not because I want to help you, but because you can help me. Mm -hmm. And if we can help each other. Great. Then we don't actually have to like each other. And by the way, I do actually kind of believe that. I am, uh, I'm very much a free market person. And if you actually watch the, uh, Fassbender film, uh, Ali Fear Eats the Soul. I love that movie. I love that movie. And that movie, by the way, does have, it's not meant to do this. Uh, I think it's about human nature in general, but I think free market, free market economics are about human nature, uh, and the understanding that, uh, we can be pretty flawed sometimes. But that's a film where a person's own, their own interest actually trumps their own prejudice. Right. And so anyway, so like these, the, like this is the conversation I'm having as a function of Nightcrawler, because I think it wants to say like, okay, so what does this look like in the extreme? How far are we willing to go? Are you rooting for Lou Bloom? I kind of am mm-hmm. in the sense that who else am I going to root for? Right. You know, there is no, there are no heroes here. Um, even his assistant played by, uh, Riz Ahmed, um, even he, like, he's kind of a naive guy, but he's also kind of, and I apologize for using, you know, terms like this. It sounds judgmental. He, even he's kind of a scumbag. He's not as bad as Lou, and he does have more of a heart to him. But, like, early on you realize, like, oh, this is a guy who, like, you know, like, we knew we knew people like this in high school who, v- very low ambition, and they're just going to do whatever they can to get by. If it's criminal, fine. If it's not Hey, sure. Um, but they're only ever going to be at a certain level, uh, because of maybe a certain mindset or, you know, they, they get into self-destructive patterns and stuff like that. And that's the vibe that I get from that character. And so he's the one, I guess we're rooting for the most. Um, he feels like the conscience of the movie. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, Only because he's reacting to things that, in a way that Jake Gyllenhaal should as well. Exactly, exactly. And so, but that doesn't keep him from continuing to be a part of this. Well, that's because, and I, I, I don't know that I would put the word scumbag on him. Uh, I feel bad saying that. Maybe that applies more to Bill Paxton's character. But this guy does seem like a... Well, no, but the, they're all acting according to the same... You said, like he found, like Gyllenhaal found, or Lou Bloom found his his world that mm-hmm. he found, that he just sort of connected with automatically. I think that uh, so did Rick. Yeah, you know he was nowhere, and then suddenly this guy is willing to take him in, and he had a learning curve mm-hmm. just like Jake Gyllenhaal or Lou yeah. Bloom did, wherein he goes, "Oh, okay, I can get away with this, and I can ask for this. I might have to push, yeah. but I can kind of manipulate the way he is in order yeah. to get a raise." Or in, order, or in order to get half of what he's going to make this night and that right. last final push. Um, and so he's uh, – scumbag isn't uh, – if he's a scumbag, then everyone's a scumbag in this movie because he's – you're right. He's the most sympathetic scumbag in the movie. Uh, you know what? I'll, I'll go with that. Um, <laughs> the, like, can you think of any – The only person that's not a scumbag, I think, is uh, – well, of course, the cop – is it just this blank cop character? But, yeah, yeah. But there's also the one guy in the editing room who's always going, "We can't. What, what are you talking about? <laughs> we right, can't yeah. do this." Yeah, he's like the ethical boundary has been crossed. Like he would say, you know, twenty minutes ago in this movie. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he. I, I guess he's a scumbag too because he didn't really put his foot down enough to yeah. actually stop it. Yeah, and I think doesn't like once like the ratings are up and stuff. Doesn't he get swept up in it as well and well, gets sure. excited about it? Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's it's a it's a world of scumbags here in LA, folks. Yeah, that includes you and me. We came here from somewhere else to I'm such a you know, scumbag. Yeah. I didn't realize it until I saw Nightcrawler. Now I know. Now you know. Yeah. Well, that's our show. Um <laughs> so yeah, uh, I'm going to go dip myself seven times in the River Jordan real quick. I'll be right back. Um Yeah, so I feel, you know, I get, it, it fascinates me because I know that there are some people that say the movie is, it's fine, you know, it's, ah, it's not doing anything new. It's like, I guess it isn't, but there's just something that feels fresh and novel about the way that it's doing it. And for me, I do think it's, it's the idea that Lou Bloom is ambition personified and one could even say business personified in the sense that like, these you mentioned them before these long monologues that he has that he's just memorized where you know he uses like just corporate slang and stuff like that and and he just mystifies other people Mm -hmm. and he says it with total conviction and and i feel like that's not a character we've seen before a character who you're not sure if he is buying into this or he just doesn't know how to relate to people so he just does this, you know, yeah. and this is the most he can do. And it's just an interesting, uh, if I can interrupt, sorry, that's fine. Um, no, the you you meant you, you kind of put it in the context of Obama's America, if you want to call it that, where you know more people are down on their luck. There's sort of a depression feeling, and people mm-hmm. are just scraping by um, to get any job that they can possibly get. But there's there's also the internet culture, sure, which precedes you know us in a way. I mean, it's yeah. like the idea that. What you need, you can find online. He says several times that he's, he's, he's like, I've, I studied a lot online. Yeah. Or I learned this online. Or I, I learned about you on, on the date with her. Yeah. I found, I can find out anything I want to about you. And he's not saying it in, in, in a creepy way or an intentionally yeah. creepy way or even in an intentionally, uh, you know, oppressive way. He's literally just saying what he knows as a human being in this culture that, that is 
you know, you work at a news station. You're a professional in this business. Of course I can find out about you. You, yeah. you only spend two years at any, any given job. You're closing on the second end of the second year at this job. So I know something's about to happen. Yeah. And I can manipulate that. He doesn't say that. Yeah. But he can. So the, the idea that he, that he learns these paragraphs, he, he says, I study a lot online. What he's doing online is he might be listening to webinars, you know, yeah. like, like how, to, how to succeed in business, like in 10 days or something. And the things that those people say, he takes to heart. And he, I, I believe that he is, he's not saying it to manipulate. I believe that he's saying those things with the most sincere heart that you can believe. And he's not, in that sense, he's not a sociopath. He's just a product, the purest version of a person who would learn something online mm-hmm. and then apply it and then take it to its logical conclusion. That's exactly what he is. Which makes him a cartoon because that doesn't actually happen. It can't happen because there's too many, right? You know, but uh, yeah, you same, at the same time, like you know, I mean, my my wife works as a wedding photographer. She went to school for it. She was trained in it uh, in in photography. But there are any number of people who they go online, they take a couple of Oof, yeah. seminars and stuff, and uh, hang out their shingle online, and and they know that they aren't great, so they charge very little money and they wind up taking money away from, and I say taking money away, you know, it's fine. Like people, you know, they get what they pay for and, and that's fine. And if they, and maybe they can't afford Jen or, or right. other wedding photographers. So it's fine. That person is out there, but that that person, I mean, we've known Jen and I've met a number of them who feel like, well, I've done this. I've, I've done the research online. So I feel hmm. like I got it nah. you now. And there's, and there's a certain degree of, uh, of, of, um, confidence there and so and i say this knowing full well i have two podcasts online you know uh so i don't mean to bash online culture at all um but i feel like in the information age i think people you know take full advantage of that of the information and but it's only what they they the research only goes as far as they are willing to go like you don't have somebody assigning it to them or anything like yeah, that. yeah if i could apply that to my world which is writing sure um, it's it's the difference between a guy writing uh, an adventure story set in uh, the Amazon jungle, mm-hmm. you know, and he bases everything that happens in that story, or at least the things that are the challenges to the main character in that story, on other movies that he's seen, or Wikipedia, a Wikipedia yeah. page on you know, and like this animal exists there, so I'll stick that in, yeah. and uh, he sees that, and you know, whatever happens is all rooted in something that he's. He has not lived versus the guy like uh, I always think of John Houston. You know, here's a guy who spent, what, 10, 15, 20 years of his life actually out there being an adventurer guy, you know, yeah. like a guy just like that you'd read about in a novel. Um, but that was his life. And then he comes back and he's in Hollywood and he went to the war for yeah. sake. And, uh, and then he makes movies. And not that he's necessarily writing all those movies, but he's experienced enough human interaction in yeah. other cultures besides the writing culture the directing culture the hollywood culture that yeah. he can actually draw on and make it more real and that's yeah. conceivably why he's one of the that's yeah. a tangent of course but but that's that's sort of like it, it it creates guilt in me as i sit at home you know when i'm not recording a podcast with you i'm at home and i'm writing mm. i'm thinking wow i i'm just in my apartment and i'm trying to breathe life into characters that i don't really know and but I can get away with it. Sure. I can do it. And I could even win an award, perhaps. You know? Well, and that's where imagination can come in and, and well, sure. extrapolating things from your own life. And listeners who've listened to the show before know that, you know, it's not like your life is without experience. Right. You know? and, and it's debatable. 
in some cases experienced that, that were, you know, foisted upon you. Sure. But, uh, but yeah. And so, um, yeah. And that's the thing is, you know, it's, it's, these days it's super easy to just bash the internet. There are plenty of TV shows and movies that do it. Um, and as I've said on the show before, the internet is a wonderful and horrible place. Whichever one of those it's going to be is kind of contingent on you and what you use it for. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I guess that, that in that way you can say it's neutral. And Lou Bloom uses it for very specific purposes sure. and is able to, mm-hmm. especially, you know, especially these days. At this point, you can find out almost anything you mm-hmm. need. Um, and uh, to go back real quick, by the way, uh, when I talk about like the Obama era, what I mean to say is I don't necessarily even mean to point it back to him. Um, I get that. You could, I mean, I think you could make an argument about that, but I think, but more about just the general tone of the country right now you know during the bush era there are a lot of movies that reflected the bush era and they taught and it was about war you know it was about war and foreign policy now it's about economics Mm -hmm. and and looking at economic structure and i think this definitely fits into that would you mind if it just feels like the right place for me to read this paragraph that i wrote go right ahead and it feels like my my like you know uh, thought through statement on the movie. Anything else is going to be just me blathering. Okay. But I write better than I speak. Okay. Um, well, hang on. Let's, yeah, you read this and I'll let you know. You be the judge okay. of that. Uh, the most interesting thing to me, and I don't feel like this is really talked about in much. I, I, I read a lot of reviews and it seems like no one's really touched on this. Um, I didn't read them all though. Uh, the most interesting thing to me is the sympathetic quality of Lou that is his simple desire to be useful. Mm-hmm. He doesn't set out to be a news gatherer. That's sort of an accident. You know, he just yeah. sort of stumbles into this wreck on the side of the road, meets Bill Paxton, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but whatever he ended up doing, he would do it from a sense that he should be doing something. And that's not true of everybody. Yeah. I mean, he has this sort of like engine inside that won't ever stop. Yeah. So he was going to be doing something. Um, he'll even be an intern at a construction site. Remember he, he said, I don't even have to be paid. I just want to be here and learn. Yeah. You know, he spills out that giant paragraph. Um, the means toward fulfilling this need and then to be the best at it is an American drive at the DNA level. And the distance he goes without a care for the people he hurts along the way is at once a perversion of the godly creative impulse that we all have. And the logical conclusion of everything we're taught in a near purely capitalistic culture. Hmm. Which I think is everything we've already said, just kind of wrapped up in a bow. Or with yeah, a bow. I think yeah, I think that that works out very well. Yes, you are a better writer than speaker. So Definitely. the next time I have you on, just write out everything you could possibly say about the movie, <laughs> and then just you know You're read on, from buddy. that. Um, but yeah, and so to get into uh, so yeah, we've speak- been speaking actually more about the themes than than I was expecting to uh, early on. Uh, to talk more about just some of the general artistic qualities of the film, uh, we've spoken quite a bit about Jake Gyllenhaal already, but I will bring up some of the uh, some of the specific things that he did. He did lose a lot of weight, mm-hmm. so he certainly looks like you know it, quite literally he looks like somebody who's hungry, you know, yeah. uh, both physically and professionally and emotionally and that sort of thing, just like. He looks positively ravenous, you know, uh, and that is certainly helped by the fact that he does not blink when he is on screen. Did you know that? I, I did not notice that, but I didn't notice it. Someone mentioned it to me and then I was like, yeah, I guess that's it. When I think of the character, I think of his eyes just constantly penetrating and a blink would break that. Yeah. And so, and I haven't watched it since then, uh, since I first saw it. And so I want to watch it now and th- and look for 
No, he, uh, he, uh, he blinked uh, there, but I, I'm sure he probably doesn't blink ever. He already has big eyes. Yeah. Even big, beautiful eyes that you big, can get lost in. Gyllenhaal eyes. Um, but, but losing the weight like makes them more bulbous or yeah. bug eyed. Yeah. Just naturally. And then he keeps them open, like wide open. Yeah. For most of the movie. Yeah. Terrifying. It's, it's, it is terrifying. I mean, the character is, I mean, he seems, it's so interesting. This film was released, I believe on Halloween. It was. I, some of the reviews had October 31st anyway, so okay, yeah, yeah. probably so. And, you know, horror movies are released on Halloween. And it's called Nightcrawler. And it's called Nightcrawler. You know, aside from the X-Men character, like, what else could that mean? It means, it sounds creepy. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and I don't think it was necessarily marketed as a horror film, but it was it was marketed as kind of a thriller and, and that there'd be some disturbing elements and that, and then, you know, his performance front and center being very creepy and all that sort of thing and so uh it is in a way it is there is a horrific or I don't, maybe not horrific but there's a disturbing quality to the film and again this a lot of it comes back from his performance which is in many ways a horror performance you know i mean when you think of it like I don't recall uh, uh, Anthony Hopkins blinking very much as Lecter. Mm. I remember him him having like these penetrating eyes as well, just constantly looking and evaluating. And it is it is that type of performance. Um, and so uh, to speak of some of the other performances, and then we'll get to some of the technical things in a moment. Can I, can I say something? Yeah, sure. We're okay to spoil things, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, listeners, here's the deal. Uh, it sounds like Robert's about to spoil something. So um, if you haven't watched the movie... Uh, for a number of reasons, stop this, go watch the movie, enjoy yourself, and then come back. All right. Anyway. Go right ahead. Uh, the moment when he approaches the, the van wreck. Yeah. I can say that. The van wreck, and he poises the camera over the victim of that van wreck. Yeah. And then, so it's a mild spoiler, because I'm yeah. not saying names. Um, and that person looks up at him, and then it cuts back to Hall with the camera, and he's holding it up over. Yeah. And the way the camera moves up onto Hall's face, holding that camera over the other guy... I, I was sitting on my couch alone watching this in the broad daylight, and I got a shudder mm-hmm. because the look on his face is this look of, understand this more if you have seen it or when you see it, this comeuppance. It's like, I got you. Mm-hmm. But it's also, this is going to be money in my bank. Yeah, triumph. It's triumph. Yeah. It's triumph, and it's it's anger. It's like, yeah, it's all these things, but the look on his face with those big, bulging, non-blinking eyes yeah. was just horrifying. It was like, really, really, it belongs on October 31st, I believe. Well, and it's, yeah, and it's the it's this moment of, in that moment, he has triumphed over the last obstacle. Mm-hmm. He's slowly but surely gone over every speed bump, and he only has one thing left between him and success, which turns out to be completely true. Mm -hmm. And now he is taking care of it. There is nothing left. And of course the companion film has a similar type of idea at the end. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a terrific performance. Uh, at the BPs last year, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal did win best actor. Oh, wow. And, uh, I believe he, uh, I believe he deserved it. So, um, the BBs are the awards ceremony for Battleship Pretension, and I will say that like 30 people vote for it. So, you know, that's not a small amount. It's not like just no. me and David. Um, but yeah, so uh, so we will move on and talk about maybe some of the other performances. Okay. Um, 
So we'll start with Renee Russo, who is the the wife of director, writer and director Dan Gilroy. And it sort of reminds me of when Ben Affleck directed Gone Baby Gone and then put his brother Casey Affleck as the lead, who's this tough Boston private detective. And Casey Affleck's great in it. And it's one of those things. It's like nepotism worked. Hmm. Because no one would ever cast Casey Affleck in that role, but ben except Ben Affleck. Yeah, and and that is and it's unfortunate that nobody else would have because Casey Affleck knocked it out of the park. And I guess maybe just as his brother, it's not merely oh I'm going to give him an opportunity. It's more I know what he's capable of hmm. better than most. And so uh, and I feel the, kind of the same way with uh, Renee Russo. Uh, I think she does a really great job. I think maybe it's probably the best performance I've ever seen of her, though I do like her in Get Shorty quite a bit. Um, and because it's the writer director, I, I wonder if maybe he, I'm sure he wrote it with her in mind. So I think he probably wrote to her strengths. Mm. And, um, I will say that the character, this character is much more conventional. We've seen this type of character before. Uh, she reminds me a little bit of Faye Dunaway in network, but she's not quite as manic as that character. Um, but she's, it's important that we see, that we see, you know, the money and, or the, or the, the bankroll or the, the corporate person, we need someone to represent the establishment. Mm -hmm. You know, Lou Bloom is outside of the establishment, desperately wanting to get in. And so he has to work with somebody who represents that. And I think she does that very well. She has an air of authority, but also there is a real sense of desperation to her character. I remember, I think the last time you were on, we talked about Michael Clayton Which and is, uh, Tilda Sw- Yeah. 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 Oh man. These Gilroy's, yeah. they are good at writing desperate that corporate women. Writer director debut. And this was his brother's writer director debut. This is crazy. This is killing me. Okay. We're, we're only going to have you on. Me, we're only going to have you on to talk about Gilroy, Gilroy projects. Okay. Um, the next born movie, I guess. I guess. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Great. Uh, and so busy that week. Um, so yeah, I feel like, uh, you know, she, she does have to have uh, a little bit of desperation and a little bit of like, for lack of a better term, sadness at where she ended up because Lou needs to be able to see that and capitalize on it. Because if she was a hundred percent happy with where she was a hundred percent satisfied and still had the confidence and authority that she has, then she would seem like, Oh, I can't quite get past that. But there needs to be little moments of frailty in her, uh, that we need to see so that we can, so that we observe that he sees it. Yeah, you know, part of me chafes, um, in terms of the writing, kind of chafes at some of the things, some of the, some of the situation they put her character in. Yeah. For instance, she's, uh, she's at the lowest rated, uh, news network in LA. Yeah. Whatever that means. I don't even know how many there are. Uh, four? Anyway, she's yeah, like I have four, no idea. Four. Yeah. But anyway. And, uh, and it's sweeps, sweeps week is coming up. Her bosses are like pushing down on her. Like you've got to get something cause, cause we've got to get back up. So she's in this stressful situation. It feels like if I was like writing it myself, I'd go, well, it seems a little obvious. Yeah. But it works because the rest of the movie feels heightened in that same way. Too. Right. From Gillen Hall's performance all the way to that yeah just the kind of the details of her work situation and in a way it almost feels like whether i don't remember if this is actually specified but i feel like the character lives on uh jake gyllenhaal's character lives on the internet it seems like he'd be able to do the research into okay which one is the lowest rated which one Mm -hmm. needs me the most yeah you know and 
There must be a reason why he walked into that station. Right, right. Yeah, you're right. I didn't think of that. Um, and so, uh, but yeah, I think Renee Russo has a, a very tough job to do, and I think she does it very well. Um, that scene where she, uh, I, in my mind, I go back to the scene, maybe just because it's a bigger scene for her acting, uh, is the scene where she, it, it is ratings week. It's the first night of ratings week, and she, he comes in with the stabbing in you know, glass yeah, yeah. or something, as opposed to the big fiery whatever it is. Yeah. And uh, she, so she's furious at him because he promised her. And this is shortly after their date, where you don't quite know if they actually went to bed together, if they actually right. had sex. Because it, it doesn't cut from the restaurant to any, anything. It just cuts to him the next day or something. But the moment I was watching this again today, this scene, and she is so frantic and furious at him yeah for bringing in the wrong level of you know gore yeah for her sweeps week to be successful but i don't get the feeling that that's all that that's making her this that's making her rage that yeah to that pitch i really get the feeling that she, that she now feels like that something has been taken from her by this yeah. man by this bizarre man, and she's getting nothing for it. Yeah, so it's, it's that not, second part, I think, It's that's not the a key. job thing, it's a personal thing, because yeah. she's been robbed of something by him. Yeah. Oof, I just... I, I, think, it's, I think it's both. I think it's... It, well, it, of course if he both. brought in gold, yeah. she'd feel better. But it's this idea of, oh, he didn't... It's like, after all that, and I don't even get much out of it. Yeah, I paid for footage, not yeah. just with money, but with myself. Yeah. And then I, this is what I get. And so she's just, yeah. just pitched this high, oof, this anger that she has not seen is just really believable. And she's also really great when I believe when she's basically conducting, that's the only thing I can think of to say, when they're revealing like the big story that he got in for and, and she wants to make sure it is, it's, it's pitched just right mm-hmm. under, like underlining the 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 buzzwords that they're saying and she's like hit it again yeah one more time like making sure that the audience that they come away from this broadcast knowing like thinking what she wants them to think and she's so specific and so determined in that moment like and it's it's great to see because that is the part of her that like yes she's frantic in some things but when she but she knows her job and Mm -hmm. she and i I always respond, even if the job is, you know, sleazy and horrible, um, I always respond in a movie to somebody who knows their job and can do it and an actor who can convey it. Um, because I'm sure you've seen, you know, in your own life or whether yourself or somebody else, when somebody just gets locked in, they know what they need to do mm-hmm. and they need to do it right and they can and then they do. Like it's somehow exhilarating to see yeah. for me. I don't know. It's one of my, it's one of those like buttons that, that if the movie pushes, I'm like, ah, I like that. And she's great. Uh, she's, it's a really good performance. And so, uh, moving on, we'll talk about, uh, Riz Ahmed as Rick. We talked about him a little bit before. Uh, he also has a tough job to do. He has to seem naive, but also seem a little bit world weary. Like he's seen some stuff in his mm-hmm. life. He, Probably would prefer not to have seen it. Probably could have avoided it, but he made some bad choices. Um, and so there's a real, there's definitely a desperation to him as well. Um, but also he's just, he's just so perpetually in over his head. Like, and we, I feel like the whole movie, we know like this guy's not making it. Yeah. Like in this world, whether Lou Bloom or not, this guy cannot make it, whatever that might mean. It might mean he gets fired or it might mean, okay, spoilers again. 
he's going to die. Like this guy. Yeah. Because early on, I wasn't sure how big of a role he was going to play. And then it's like, oh, he is a supporting role. Mm-hmm. Like he's there a lot of the time. And, uh, and so Riz Ahmed, like, you know, needs to play sort of the, 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 the dread that we have, uh, but not overplay. Like he can't telegraph it, you know, because if he does, then you make the character know too much and a character anticipating too much. And the character obviously can't anticipate things, you know, otherwise his, he would have a different fate. Would you call him the comic relief? He is often the comic relief, the two of them together, especially, um, because like a lot, he is funny, but also, uh, Lou is also funny in response to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, he's a comic relief, but he's a lot more than that. He's, as you said earlier, he's kind of the conscience of the film, if there is one. And, uh, and as the conscious of the, uh, conscience of the film, I think he also plays an important role in that he knows what he's doing is wrong, but he does it anyway because he has to, you know, um, which you is feel like he has no choice at a certain point in the movie. He has uh, invested enough time and already done things yeah. across all kinds of lines already. Yeah. So he's just like one more step. He's 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 aware of the unethicalness in in unethical. What's the word I'm looking for? He's he's aware of what that thing is. Yeah, how bad it is that he shouldn't be doing it, but he keeps going anyway because it's really the only game in town for him. He's he doesn't yeah. have time now to separate himself from that. And he's living in a garage for goodness sake. I'm sleeping in a garage. Yeah. Um, the way he panics is so believable and funny. He's just a, it seems like it, like in real life, he'd probably be a naturally funny person. Did you ever see four lions? No, I've started like once or twice. and I really want to see it because it's right up my alley. Yeah. He's the lead of that. Okay. And it's a comedy. And even though his character is not like his character is kind of the straight man, but he's still very funny as well and kind of bumbling. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, he definitely has a, you know, he definitely has a comic sensibility. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think he's very good. Um, Would you consider this movie a comedy? No, but I also wouldn't, I wouldn't consider, you know, Goodfellas a comedy or I wouldn't compare, I wouldn't consider the companion film a comedy or no country for old men, but I do laugh a lot in all of them. Um, I would, but I I wonder for me, it's a laugh of like incredulity. Like I can't believe what I'm seeing or something like that. There's, there are moments we can talk about it being a satire, which doesn't have to be necessarily funny. Right. Like, uh, being there is a satire, Mm -hmm. but it's not funny. Yeah. It's got its amusing moments, I guess. That's a totally different movie, obviously, tonally. But this movie has moments that feel like, I mean, the, the the satire of it kind of bleeds into broadness. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the moments I'm thinking of is once again, uh, Lou Bloom is furious at Rick for taking him the wrong direction. Yeah. To to the whatever the, the uh, explosion or the warehouse fire or whatever it is, and uh, that happens several times. And then there's the moment where Gyllenhaal is actually taking them somewhere that Rick thinks they should not be going to because he thinks well he says why aren't we at the rape in uh, in Glendale like everyone else? And the way he says that is so blasé about the fact yeah. that someone's been raped. Yeah. It, it's funny and it's broadly funny. Yeah. And yet still kind of subtle because it's in the in this like really mixed up like fast paced moment. Yeah. And so you're not almost like not supposed to think about that, but it's part of this like the fabric of its satire is these broader moments of rape. We should be we should be over there where everyone else is at the rape. Yeah. It's just funny to me. They just become 
terms at that point. Yeah. Like they don't actually mean yeah. anything except, except poten- potentially, you know, potential ratings or money mm-hmm. or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he does a great job and, and I feel like, um, I feel like he's probably, I, I don't know if I'd say he's going to take off, but I feel like this will probably, this probably got him a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that he was, you know, not that this necessarily matters, but I know that he was nominated for a, an independent spirit award for best supporting actor. Um, this film was very much embraced. For this movie? Yeah. This film was very much embraced by the indie spirit awards, which mm-hmm. is, which I'm happy about. Good. Um, and then lastly, just real quick, I just want to talk about Bill Paxton who does not have a big role in the film, but I think has an important one. He is, he does what Jake Gyllenhaal wants to do. And so he is competition. Uh, and he is, and Bill Paxton is specifically sleazy. Like the way that he plays the character and the way that the, the way they design the character, you know, kind of long scraggly hair and facial hair and just a guy who maybe doesn't care that much about, uh, the way he looks or anything like that. He kind of, he, he kind of had a vibe of like a corrupt cop to Mm me. Um, and so he is sleazy, but it's notable. He's sleazy in a way we are comfortable with as, as film goers and maybe even as people. So like, we need to see like, okay, so that's actual sleaze. Like he's not doing anything better. Officially. He's not doing anything better than Jake Gyllenhaal. They're both doing the exact same thing, but it's the way in which he does it. And maybe it's the reason that he does it, you know? Um, like we need someone like him to sort of show how bad Lou is. I mean, everyone kind of shows that and he certainly shows it himself, but oh, okay. So that's what the normal night crawler looks like. Oh boy. Yeah. Okay. Lou, Lou is a rough guy, you know? So, um, and so I, but I, I really got a sense of uh, the character felt very lived in, mm-hmm. uh, for me. And I think that's a function of Bill Paxton's performance. Just, the way that he carries himself, the way he talks and walks, he's just very, he's done this a million times before and now he's going to do it once more. This is his job. He just seems like a guy at work. And I like that a lot. So, uh, we will move on, uh, to some of the technical elements. As I said already, um, you know, I like the way they shoot Los Angeles at night. Robert Ellswood is of course a brilliant cinematographer. And, um, and the, the, it's weird. It's, the way it is shot seems in many ways like just gritty, gritty reality. And yet somehow seems surreal at the same time. I mean, in that, in that sense, I, I do get a, a taxi driver vibe from mm-hmm. it. Um, a lot of the reviews, I, I, I would not have thought of this, but, um, many mentioned, uh, Michael Mann and specifically uh, collateral. I was thinking of collateral as well. Yes. Yeah. Just that it, it does have kind of a slick, a slickness to it. Yeah. It's a Gilroy feature, I think. Yeah. Um, but it's also lifted from Michael Mann and that, that style of yeah. let's make the night look cool. Yeah. And everything Thief, kind of Thief has that a lot too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, that's definitely Thief recently. It's good. Yeah. I only saw it for the first time recently and I think it's marvelous. It's it is good. among his best movies. If not, his like, I wouldn't say it's his best, but I think it's maybe in his top three for me. My only question in that movie, sorry for the tangent. How come no one, where, where is this car lot? Because so much crap goes down that just explodes with sound, but no one ever shows up to like do anything about it. It's just like people getting blown away with guns, explosions. Hey, that's Chicago, buddy. I guess so. Um, so yeah, I, I do think the film is, is really gorgeous. Um, you know, it just, there's, it's hard to explain. There's a slickness to it, but there's also like a shimmering quality, like the mm-hmm. way the lights are shot, the way lights reflect off of windshields and cars and all mm-hmm. of that. It just feels, 
it feels cool, but also a little bit dangerous. And, you know, it's nighttime and it's late at night. And so the streets are mostly empty. Mm-hmm. Um, drive. It's like drive in that sense as well. And so, uh, and you know, we're mentioning movies though. Michael Mann made collateral 10 years ago. He definitely has an eighties sensibility and mm-hmm. drive certainly does. And so, you know, maybe this, maybe the, the look of the film is sort of inspired by, you know, um, movies of the eighties or something like that. Certainly wouldn't be the first film that is there's, it seems like every other week there's a movie that is directly inspired by a genre from the eighties or a right. director from the eighties. Um, but yeah, so I think it's, I think it's gorgeous. Um, I think, I think we can move on from there unless, uh, you know, are there any other like technical, technical elements or would you like to talk a little bit more about the script itself being a writer uh, as you are? Did you, the film was nominated for one Oscar, which was best original screenplay. Um, that no. does, that does bum me out just cause I thought Jake Gyllenhaal deserved nomination, but it was a very crowded field this last year. Yeah. I forget who, uh, what the script was up against. Like, was it an easy field for scripts? I don't, honestly, gosh, I don't, I don't remember. And now I don't remember what one, uh, what one picture. Oh, Birdman one. Gotcha. And uh, but which is also great. Uh, yeah, I like Birdman a lot. And then I think Grand Budapest was also nominated, but mm-hmm. didn't win. And I think right. that was that was kind of the front runner. So I don't think you know every okay. Nightcrawler was an independent film by a first time director that made some money and kind of put certain actors on the map in a cert- in a different way. So the Oscars will nominate it for best screenplay. That's what they do. Yep. Um, if it had been more widely loved, like let's say it was nominated for picture, director, actor, and screenplay, it might have won screenplay at that point. But in this case, it's just like, eh, we don't really know you yet, but this movie was pretty popular, and I guess the script is pretty good. Okay, let's do this. Do um, so yeah, uh, I'm not sure if I would, if I would have given it best screenplay uh, yeah i think i probably would have as much as i do like the screenplay for birdman i think there's a lot more when i think of the specifics of those again to go back to those monologues are so beautifully written birdman in oh sorry the monologues in nightcrawler oh right are so beautifully written that i just they are but think about this uh they they are actually what could have been the easiest parts to write because oh, it, sure. because it's exactly like he says he learned online yeah and you can go to any self help uh, business speak type website and lift as much yeah. as you want and cobble it together and that's what he's saying and it sounds exactly like it should without doing much work I'm not saying that right but I but I do think work. it's knowing which ones to include and knowing the character so well yeah that knowing that like okay he's going to go back into his little memory banks of these you know. These buzzwords, and he's going to come up with this in this particular instance. You know, I think it requires. Get out of your head. It's a bad neighborhood. Even phrases like that. Those aren't. That's not business speak or anything. But they're like little aphorisms that you must have picked up along the way. A friend is a gift you give yourself. Fear is stands for false evidence appearing real. Yeah. You know, all these things are just like they they belong on a poster in the person that you hate at work. Yeah. And they don't. They seem to mean a lot, but they don't really mean much. They they mean a lot without there's no way to actually apply them. Yeah. The fact that he is saying them means way more than the things themselves. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, and that, and so like, and all of these are script decisions, you know? And so even if he found these phrases elsewhere, his inclusion of them and where he chooses to include mm-hmm. them, I think is, is great. The creation of Lou Bloom in general, and that he's just cobbled together from all these different sources, uh, is I think kind of brilliant. Yeah. 
No, I agree. And I think the script is great. Uh, I, I, I recall reading several reviewers uh, sort of bemoaning the fact that he gets more spoilers, but he actually survives the entire, you know, you know, the, the cops apparently let him go for some reason. Yeah. And now he's sort of, he's, he's, uh, moving forward in his sociopathic entrepreneurial, you know, efforts yeah. to do this. And, uh, he's hired some new interns. And at the end, he's sort of like giving them the pep, pep talk of like, this is going to be great. And you just, another one of these perfectly worded pep talk sort of business mm-hmm. speak kind of things. And it makes sense given the movie and the level of satire. And it it just made me think again about Taxi Driver and how much I hate the end of that movie because it feels like this. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't deserve that kind of ending. Remember Taxi Driver at the end of all this stuff? Yeah. uh, Scorsese pushes in on this, like, ripped out um, news article from the newspaper. It's up on the wall and it says, like, Travis Bickle saves day, hero of city, gets city key, or whatever it is it says. Yeah, it ends on a... It ends on a... Sort of a like it's making it, it ends on an, on a note of social commentary, and while there is that in the film, I don't. To me, Travis uh, Taxi Driver is never first and foremost a social commentary. I think it's a character study. That's a satirical uh, uh, note. Yeah. In in a movie that had no other satirical notes. Yeah. Whereas this one, when the guy gets away at the end, and he's like. You know, he's making a, a good living now, yeah. uh, doing the very thing that should have got him thrown in jail before. Yeah. Um, you know, it makes sense because the satire, the satire carries it through that. So I, yeah. I like the way it ended. Yeah, I do too. And in a way, it almost feels there's an, an inevitability to it. Like Lou is a, f- a force of nature and he's just going to keep going. You know, you said the idea that uh, he just has to keep moving. Well, uh, that's like a shark. A shark has to keep moving. Mm-hmm. Unless, like the only way to stop it is to kill it. Yeah. And so, um, to the extent that I think even like, I think a great white shark has never been held in captivity. Like they just, they either like die or whatever. And so, um, so he's like a great white shark in that sense. Like he's just gonna, it's like, Oh, the cops, yeah, I can work my way through that. Sure. Um, and yeah, and it, somehow if the film ended with him losing, that would have felt false. It would have to the Absolutely. tone of the film. Yeah. So they were um, right to do that. Yeah. And it feels wrong, sort of in a in a grander like Hollywood scheme of things, to let a guy like that get away. Yeah. You know, in the last, you can show him doing anything, but in the last, you got to throw him in jail. Yeah. Or kill him. Yeah. Um, but it makes sense. You're absolutely right for them to end it this way. So uh, we'll move into the companion film a little bit, and I will say this: so the companion film is Paul Thomas Anderson's "There Will Be Blood," and immediately when I re- when I realized that we don't actually have a whole lot of time to talk about it. Um, uh, I feel like, you know, we're giving it kind of the short end of the stick. I know we are. And so I will say that, uh, at some point in the future, I'll do a full episode about it. Um, it we'll, deserves it we'll sure. be, you know, probably discussing a lot of the same themes. So I'll hold off, you know, uh, honestly, I'm doing I mean, it for a while. If I can say this, this is a disservice to Nightcrawler a bit, but when I really think about it, it feels like this Nightcrawler should be the companion piece to yeah. there will be blood. Yeah. Because as soon as I started watching there will be blood after Nightcrawler, I was like, "Oh, this this is greatness." Yeah, from the very first scene yeah. of him picking, you know, down in the in the hole. Yeah, it's like this feels true to greatness. It is oh, yeah. actually a great movie. Yeah, um, you mentioned John Huston earlier. There's a lot of John Huston influence oh, in a lot of ways uh-huh. in There Will Be Blood. Um, yeah, and the. Uh, over Battleship Pretension, when uh, we were ending the uh, the twenty aughts 
uh, we, like so many other websites, put together like our individual lists of the best movies of the of the twenty aughts. And uh, my number one was There Will Be Blood. Um, I think it's a marvelous film uh, that will always be remembered, mm-hmm. um, regardless of what Paul Thomas Anderson might be now. And I love The Master, and I liked Inherent Vice. But, like he could just be. He could go completely downhill from here, and he'll still be... It's interesting. For a long time, he was the guy that did Boogie Nights. He's the guy that, that did Magnolia. He's the guy that did There Will Be Blood for a lot of people. I think it's a masterpiece. But um, So, yeah, it feels you know somehow wrong to talk about. But I do, you know, I I think Nightcrawler's probably easier for me to watch, um, whereas, I, you know, just there's such weight to There Will Be Blood. Mm-hmm. Um but if we want to look at the the arcs of these characters, they're you know they're very similar. Both of them are total misanthropes. They just they hate everybody. They're remarkably ambitious, and uh, I think with there will be blood. I think you get a little bit more of the character trying to connect with people sometimes, or finding himself sort of backing into an actual human connection. And then when that turns out to require more of him than he wants to give, uh, he will remove himself from that one way or another. And, but you also have a guy who's just always moving forward and there one obstacle comes up, he gets it out of the way. Here comes another one, gets it out of the way. And, you know, until he is incredibly successful. Um, I think the, the ending is a little bit ambiguous. Um, at this point, listeners, I'm sure you've seen there will be blood, but you know, when he, you know, when he kills his own Rick, basically, and, uh, not to him, uh, Eli Sunday is, has a much larger role thematically, I think than Rick does. But, you know, in both cases, like, all right, this is the last thing I need to do. Except of course, Daniel Plainview doesn't actually need to kill Eli, but it's a thing he feels like he should do or needs to do or wa- certainly wants to do. Um, but, you know, and then he says, I'm finished. Mm-hmm. His butler says, is there anything he can do? And he says, I'm finished. And then cut to black. Uh, you know, people have dis- different interpretations of what that might, what I'm finished might mean. Um, you know, it's directly, he's saying it in terms of like, you know, the meal that he just ate or something like that, but it could, mean a lot of different things i know some people think that it think that it means okay he's going to go to jail now me i think he's going to be just fine um oh he'll be miserable and a, a human monster but uh but i don't think he's going to jail i think he's going to continue living in that mansion going more and more crazy and being more and more miserable um so yeah i think in the same way as nightcrawler i think the main character this monstrous person uh will for lack of a better term get away with it hmm. except i think for him there there are emotional consequences i like i said i think he's going to be i think he will be unhappy for the rest of his life where i, th- I think lou i think lou's pretty happy and i think he's lou thinks he's doing the right thing he thinks he's doing the right thing and i think he's he feels very satisfied with himself yeah and the, the uh, i guess a basic difference between the two characters is that the difference between Lou, uh, Lou feels like a person who doesn't really have a memory when he does something, like when he hurts somebody. Yeah. Um, maybe it's the shark reference again, uh, or analogy again. But once he's chewed through a circumstance, he doesn't look back. Yeah. But you do get the sense from Daniel Plainview that he is cataloging things. Sure. Um, I guess case in point would be when HW comes back yeah. as an older person, as an older um, son. Um, and there's all that just 
bitter rancor that yeah. comes out of Plainview, Daniel Plainview's uh, mouth yeah. about him. And so he's a, he's a person who remembers. And so I believe you're right that when he says, I'm finished, uh, he's not finished with remembering. Yeah. He's not finished with uh, dealing with the emotional aftermath of having hurt so many people. Yeah. Um, wow. That, that character, I, again, I was watching it sort of directly after and after Nightcrawler. And the, I, I'm going back to the scene where he and H.W. as a kid mm-hmm. are in the restaurant and the four businessmen come in and sit yeah. on the table. And Plainview just can't stand the fact that these are guys that these guys are there at all. Yeah. Um, and then there's the thing with the Union Railroad versus the whatever the yeah. the other railroad, and like he's taking the deal with the other guys. Who's gonna? He has to say something. Yeah. And the camera lingers on from a distance on Plainview, sitting in that chair next to his son, just taking, just glancing over the other guys with these like half-masked eyes. Yeah. And he's drunk already, um, middle of the day. But there's this, even from a distance, there's this anger and bitterness. Yeah. That you're glad the camera's far away because you yeah. feel like you could like you you might get some of it on you if you're too much too too much closer yeah and then he comes over and makes a scene out of it just and he says to the other guy he says you're making you're you look like a fool yeah when he's the one that looks like a fool it's really sad and actually makes yeah. you feel for the guy in a way that maybe you hadn't up to that point he's a total jerk total totally solipsistic you know like me first guy yeah. you should hate him but moments like that and he's with his kid who he clearly loves. Yeah. And he makes a fool of himself and it's just really sad. Yeah. It's uh he has a, you know, the line of, of the film. Well, there's a few, but, uh, uh, the thing that kind of sums him up and it seems like such an understatement is I have a competition in me. Yeah. I want no one else to succeed. And then he follows that up with, I hate most people, <laughs> um, <laughs> which, and I feel like, so to get into and, I feel terrible like moving on, but I know that we, uh, we're a bit pressed for time. So, um, listeners, if you haven't seen There Will Be Blood, I know I, I maybe spoiled it a little bit already, but it's not like there's a big twist at the end or anything like that. Yeah. It's just, it's a development. And if you look at it, there's a sense of inevitability to it. Um, it's a marvelous film, beautifully acted, wonderfully shot. Same cinematographer as, mm-hmm. uh, Nightcrawler, but notably different tone. One is all at night, one is. Often in the you know Almost harsh exact daylight, same main theme, which is you know sort of an attack on capitalism and yeah. what that can do to a person to take yeah. to its logical conclusions. And that's the thing, like you know, we say capitalism, and I guess that is, I feel like it's even deeper than that. Like capitalism in this case is like the instrument for somebody's ambition, just the choosing of what I want, mm-hmm. and what I want is more. That's it, just more, more than I have now, and more than you'll ever have. That's what I want. Um, you know, it's one of my, one of my favorite, uh, I think I've said on the show before, one of my favorite Simpsons lines is when, uh, Homer is talking to Mr. Burns and he's like, wow, Mr. Burns, you've got so much. And he's like, he's like, yes, but I'd trade it all for a little more. And just like, it's such a, it's such a brilliant idea. That's, like, he's wistful and, about that. And he's wistful about like, ah, yes, but, and it sounds like he's going to say something really humble, but it's exactly the opposite. But, um, but yeah, and so you have these characters who they just want. You know what? That might be the end of the sentence. They want. Mm-hmm. Even Eli. Let's not let the, oh, sure. the, the God guy off the hook. Yeah. Oh, he's all. Yeah. All these characters are incredibly ambitious. They want 
success. They will dictate dictate success to other people. That's something that Eli does and there will be blood a lot is he says, he goes, I will bless the well. You will introduce me this way. Like mm-hmm. there's no question. Yeah. It's just, this is how it's going to work. Um, and because the, he has the, he has the religious conviction underneath that allows him to be a lot more presumptuous, you know? Um, and so, uh, there's so much to be said about in that movie, which should be saved for perhaps the, uh, the actual show on this movie, but the, uh, but the way that organized religion feeds off the impulses within capitalism, oh, yeah. sort of inherent to capitalism. And in order to get ahead, he says, um, I just want, I just want $10,000. He says, I'm not giving you $10,000. Yeah. You will give me $10,000 for my church. Yeah. Like, mm, okay. You mean for you, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, well, for my ambition. You will give me money via your ambition so yeah. that I can meet my own. And even if he puts it into the church, it's so that we can grow the church, get more people, and then I get more power. Exactly. You know. Um, it's really scathing on, on both sides. Very like much Capitalism so. and religion. Um, and I remember at the time, a lot of people, I, I think it was even touted as like a ambition i think it was ambition versus faith or something like that it's like uh it's not that it's not really a versus first off to put it that way i think puts eli on a level playing field with daniel which he is not daniel Mm -hmm. is definitely the main character um we're much more invested in him eli is you know kind of a foil to him but that's kind of all um yeah it's it's basically the 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 major roadblock to his to daniel's own ambitions yeah is this nagging need on this on the part of this religious person to also glom on yeah it's like oh, i gotta get rid of that guy or do something about this yeah i'll just i'll give him money yeah. i'll let him have part of the land or you know what i'm tired of this guy but it's all about daniel oh absolutely and i feel like there's a you know looking at this line that i mentioned i have a competition in me i want no one else to succeed i hate most people I feel like if you t- there, I, so we're talking about ambition. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with ambition. There's nothing wrong with wanting more or wanting to be more successful. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. Uh, but when that, as we say on the show so often, like when that becomes the ultimate thing, like I want to be the best, you know. And as I've talked about on the show many times, like I deal with envy. I want to be like the best guy ever. I want to be capable of everything. I want to be ready for anything. I want to be able to speak a bunch of languages, play every musical instrument. Like I want to be all of these things. Mm. And it's a horrible, I've basically made myself miserable because no one can be those things, but I know people that are closer to it. Uh, And because of that, you know, like I have a, I have a competition in me and I'm losing, you know, and it's just, and it's, it's awful. It really is awful. And so that's, you know, so when you look at these, you look at these characters that are ambitious and they just, they want success, maybe because they live in a capitalistic society. Maybe it's because I think in the case of Daniel, um, uh, Daniel Plainview, I think it's this idea that once he is at the top of the mountain, he no longer needs anybody anymore because hmm. he's tired of needing people. You know, it might be that he, uh, that he's ambitious because he hates people. It might be he hates people because he's ambitious. Because you can't have a love for humanity and be as ambitious as these people are. When you only see someone as an obstacle, 
you're not seeing them as a person by any stretch. And so, you know, looking at some of these other uh, quotes, so uh, Lou Bloom says, what if my problem wasn't that I don't understand people, but that I don't like them? And it's such a, like, it's a very insightful thing for him to say. Yeah. And it's like, it's the closest he'll come to like a moment of like, yeah, an epiphany or, yeah. Um, that combined with the idea of, of I hate most people. There's another one, uh, from Daniel Plainview. Uh, I see the worst in people. I don't need to look past seeing them to get all I need. I've built up my hatreds over the years, little by little having you here talking to, a. a his perceived brother having you here gives me a second breath of life. I can't keep doing this on my own with these people Mm. and just the contempt with which he says people. And he's got a smile on his face. It seems so demonic the way he says it, but there's a real, there's a, a genuine, like by feeding ambition, they're dehumanizing everybody else. Um, and it is hard to know which, with these characters, which came first, do they just not want to deal with people? And the best way to do that is to be successful and not be accountable to anybody. Or is it, I want to be the best and these people are keeping me from it. So you know what? They're out. Um, it's hard to know. Uh, and that's one of the things that I like about both movies is it's hard to point and say, there's their motivation. I got it. Um, well, that's cause in, in both cases, you don't really know much of the backstory before yeah. frame one. Yeah. Which I think is great. Yeah. Um, and so, but what's interesting is the way looking at these quotes, I find this, uh, this parallel interesting is that, uh, so Daniel actually does have people in his life that he cares about. He does care about HW. He does come to care about, uh, his brother. And then, you know, of course. when he finds out that that is not what, that's not the case, then he responds like he responds with such viciousness because he, he let some of himself go, mm-hmm. um, to care about someone and then was betrayed. And it's almost like, Oh, I, I like, I see the worst in people. And then I didn't see the worst in you. And I now it's like, I was right. I was right in how much people should be hated. Mm-hmm. But then he also projects that onto HW as he talks to him as an adult. And so what I think is interesting. So look at this. I've built up my hatreds over the years, little by little. That's a thing. Daniel says when he's talking to his son, he says, I should have seen this coming because his son wants to start his own oil business. He says, I should have seen this coming. I should have known that under this, all these past years, you've been building your hate for me piece by piece. Mm. So in both cases, the idea of putting, building hatred, like an active thing, it's something he says he has done, but now he's putting it on his son. Why? Simply because his son wants his own business. He is, and he says, you, he goes, so you are my competitor. Not son, mm-hmm. not fellow human being, a competitor. And if you're a competitor, that, then that is it. Like, because you, now you've become an obstacle. You've become one more person in one more thing in the way of me being successful. And even though there's no, like, I doubt his son would ever be as successful. It's like, all right, that's the end of it. And I'm sure he feels betrayed in that moment. It reminds me very much of the moment in nightcrawler when gyllenhaal is running with his camera to the van wreck Mm -hmm. and uh rick says you can't you can't go no don't do this he's one of us and uh gyllenhaal says no he's now he's a sale yeah it's like yeah the competition has become now good for me yeah yeah and it's just you know and so there's a real um 
a real hardening of the heart when it when when ambition is the most important thing mm-hmm. and it can, and you can be ambitious in any number of things like we just said with Eli you know the, there's a Christian show I have ambitions that are in many ways linked to my faith um, just because you have a, a God related goal doesn't mean that your blind ambition is a good thing right you know and so uh, there are a number of uh, of Bible verses that we can go through and we will uh, rather quickly. Luke nine twenty three through 25. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Hmm. That last part, feels like something that could go over the last frame of their old people. I think Um, we'll go Matthew 23 verse 12. You take it. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And you know, it's interesting because you look at that and in many ways, plain view is not humbled. He lives in like a giant mansion, Mm -hmm. but what you talked about earlier, he's drunk in the middle of the day he feels, you know, these guys come in that are more successful than he is, and he decides he's going to, like, get in their face, like, a, just be belligerent. And just, this is a character who, on his best day, can have just this air of authority and almost majesty to him. But in that moment, he's just a like, mm-hmm. he's just a mean drunk in front of his kid, by the way. And, like, that's, and he's somebody who is... That's what, like, humbling yourself looks like. And when you look at the way that he's living in his mansion... Drunk probably all the time, you know, uh, dirty plates and dishes all over the place. Like he's at one point he set up a weird little barricade of furniture and is just like shooting off guns. Like Mm -hmm. this is what it looks like to be completely unaccountable. But like that say, yeah, he may live in a giant mansion, but within that mansion, I'd say he's pretty well humbled at that point. He's if he if the younger him would look at that and think, oh, that's what I'm going to be. Okay, maybe this isn't the best course of action. Howard Hughes. Very much so. Um, so I'll say, uh, I'll go First Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But we, ha- if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Well, wow. a lot of stuff going, a lot of stuff going on there. Um, and so now we have the idea of contentment. And I would definitely say Daniel Plainview is not content. Um, and Lou Bloom is not content either. Uh, and I, you know, for me, there's always the, the frustration of like, there's a difference between contentment and complacency, but they're very similar. If you, if you want, like you can be content one day and then the next day you found you've fallen into complacency. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and I guess the, so what is contentment, I guess, is the question here. We've talked about ambition or more specifically a, a blind ambition, ambition over all else. We've talked about that. So what, you know, what is contentment? I think the difference, if, if you're asking me, I'm sure. rhetorical, the difference between the two is thankfulness. Mm-hmm. Um, content means you're aware of the things you have. 
and the things you don't have, but you're still thankful and humble. You're humbled. You're humble for the things you do have. You're mm-hmm. thankful for the things you don't have. Does that make any sense? You're, sure. You're still thankful. You have a thankful attitude toward your life, no matter where it is in terms of like yeah. your, your ambitions or the, those things you want to achieve. You're still content. Whereas complacency, um, you, you, maybe I shouldn't have started talking because I don't really know, but it just feels like that that's, that's such a more pejorative kind of word. It's just mm-hmm. like... It's like you're there, and then you're not really even thinking about why you're there, or what what is good, or even what needs to be changed. Yeah, you're just like you're coasting, and contentment isn't isn't as much about coasting. It's more about being aware of the things you have and don't have, but still being thankful. Yeah, and but that gives you room to still go forward, sure, and be better. Um, address things versus complacency. It just feels like you're you've kind of given up in a way. Yeah, it's uh, complacency. I think is when you're comfortable and you're and that is and that suddenly becomes the most important thing more than ambition. And so, almost in a way, it, this is not a good analogy, but I picture like a guy sitting in a very comfortable chair and he's very content. And then someone says, hey, I need you to actually, and he's very happy with his life. He's very happy with this chair. It's very comfortable. But then someone says, hey, I need you to come help me with this. If he gets up and goes to help, I think he's content. I think you can say, oh, he was content while he was in that chair. If he says, eh, and just stays in the chair, I think you can say he's complacent at that point. Like, because he's then choosing comfort, mm-hmm. and one could say laziness above, uh, like you said, moving forward, you know, and that sort of thing. So, um, but yeah, and so as far as contentment in our own lives, you know, that's a much harder thing to to achieve. You know, one thing that I that I talked about when we did our mini set about Amadeus and that I've talked about here is my own envy. All I ever see is what I don't have. Hmm. You know, I've been married almost 10 years. I live in a, in a house. Like I've, I've been blessed in a lot of ways. Um, at the very, like I don't have any major health problems. Like I have sight in both eyes. I have, you know, hearing and all that. Like, just like I have all my limbs, uh, like very like basic on that basic level, not every, not everybody has that. I do. Um, but I get, you know, I get caught up and it's like, yeah, but I'm overweight. Then that's all I see, you know? And so, uh, now of course it's important to like want to be healthy and that sort of thing and may, and want to look my best for, you know, for my wife and that sort of thing. Um, but I think it's, if it becomes a function of personal pride, like if I go to the gym, not necessarily to get healthy, not necessarily to, look, to like look good for my wife, but because like I need to be the best, then like that's ambition. But I think contentment is to say, yeah, I could use a little bit of work, but I have been blessed in so many ways, and things could be so much things could be so much worse. Not merely for me, but things are worse for other people. But that can be a little iffy because you're still comparing. So you so I think maybe keeping it. In your own life, looking, looking backwards, looking forwards, looking at where you are right now and saying like, and if you want to bring God into it, which why wouldn't you? It's a Christian show saying like where I am right now is where God wants me to be. And by the way, that doesn't mean that you, that's not an excuse for complacency. That's not an excuse for, oh, so I guess I'll just stay here, right? In all my flaws, in all my problems, I'll just stay here. No, it's just. God, what you have right now is what God has given to you. And so that is a thing that you can be happy with and thankful for, as you said, or you can only see the things he hasn't given you and the things he's given other people. 
And so, uh, we will move on to, uh, Matthew six verses 19 through 21. Uh, Robert, you take that. All right. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there. Your heart is also. Okay. And I will read Matthew six thirty three. Uh, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, that verse can be problematic because it almost has a prosperity gospel Absolutely. quality to it if you want to look at it a certain way. Um, it doesn't necessarily when, say when all these things will be added, up, uh, added unto you. It might be when you die. Um, but it certainly there certainly is a charge here, which is seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And... It doesn't say don't be ambitious, but it does say first kingdom of God and righteousness. If your ambition causes you to dehumanize people and to work to build up a hatred for other people bit by bit, I'd say that's not very righteous. You know, at that point, your your ambition is getting in the way of, you know, seeking the kingdom of God and seeking righteousness and all of that. So, um, you know, Anytime we talk about something like this, contentment, uh, ambition, they're all concepts, you know, and it's hard to know when you've achieved any of them. Um, and so one thing that I, that I always get frustrated with with myself is I always have a hard time giving, giving people advice on how to make this a practical thing. Um, you know, do you, do you have any thoughts in your own, in your own life? My only, uh, example is my car, which I've had now for a lot of years, like 15 years. And I got it when it was about four years old. And I remember when I first drove it into my, my garage and my apartment complex, I, and I walked away to go into my apartment. I looked back at it and I was like, I'm so thankful. Thank you God for this car. It's wonderful. Mm -hmm. It runs well because the previous car was ancient. Yeah. Um, this one I could actually get over the hill. Oh, that's exciting. Well now I'm worried every time I come to your place in the same car because it overheats coming over the hill. So now I'm kind of in the same place. Oh, wow. So the charge to me is, can I still walk away in my garage and look back at the car and go, I'm thankful for that. It still gets me around. Thank yeah. you, God, for that car. Yeah. And I don't know. I, some some days, no. Some days, yes. I think complacency is when I just, eh, I've got a car. It's, yeah, whatever. It's fine. Yeah. But contentment is, I still am blessed by God. There are people in this town who have to get to work and they have to take a bus because they have no car. Yeah. Whatever it is. And uh, so I guess that would be an example for my life. Yeah, I think that's, ongoing a, that's a concrete example, example I think. Um, yeah, and just, and I feel like I've been remarkably blessed as far as like places I've lived. And, you know, um, my old apartment was a one bedroom, um, but the rate was in North Hollywood the rate was really good. Um, I mean, we, like we were, we were thanking God when we moved in that that we could, I mean, you, you were in my place, like for a one bedroom, it was pretty big and very spacious. Yeah. I remember. Um, and we were so excited when we got it, we didn't think we were going to get it. And then we did. And it's like, Oh, this is great. Look at all this room we have. And then we, lived there for a long time and then we both started working out of the home and suddenly this big place seemed a lot smaller kind of tiny and um 
and you know, it's fine. If you outgrow a place, then, you know, you get somewhere else. That's fine. But you know, in that moment, it's like the place didn't stop being spacious and it was a hard thing to get. Like we did have to jump through a lot of hoops to get it because the, the rent was so low. Um, the guy wanted to make sure that, you know, uh, he basically said like the low rent is a reward for good tenants. And, but so there's a lot of hoops you got to jump through. And it's like, and we did it and we, and it, everything went through and it was great. It was everything we wanted. And so the place hasn't changed. What has changed is what we want, but it's still a blessing. We still have a roof over our head. It's still, we still could have not gotten it, you know? Right. And so like that, that to me is, is an example. And then the place where I'm living now, yes, it's a townhome. I could look at that. I could look at the fact that there's really no yard to speak of, or I could look at the fact that there is a fourth bedroom that we did not, that was not in the yeah. listing that we have you that we've listed on Airbnb and now we're actually now we are we're making money as a function of this. We had no anticipation of that. We weren't expecting it. We weren't looking for it. It was just dropped in our lap. Hmm. And like it's it's crazy. You know, so I could look at yeah, it's a townhome and eh, it's not the best or I could look at being blessed beyond anything we ever expected, you know. And so so those are some concrete examples. And of course, when it comes to job where you can always be looking, that's where ambition, ambition can come in. Like where you could be, ha- it's like, well, I'm, I'm happy where I am. I could be doing better. Do I move forward and risk being super ambitious or do I stay where I am and risk being complacent? You know, and that's where, you know, prayer and advice from other people and, you know, prayer for wisdom comes in and that kind of thing. So, you know, it's on a case by case basis. I think, I don't think you can ever say, uh, if you have an opportunity for a promotion, take it. Or if you have an opportunity for promotion, don't take it because you don't want to be ambitious. You don't want to be Daniel, Daniel Plainview. Um, oh, can you imagine? Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's a lot going on here and, but I will say that how ambition and ambition can look different for everybody. It may be career. It may be, I was talking earlier about like wanting to get a good, you know, have a good body and that sort of thing. Um, it can look different for everybody. Uh, but I'd say watch Nightcrawler, watch There Will Be Blood. And if some of the stuff that they say makes a certain degree of sense, like it does to me, to a certain extent, then maybe just take a moment and think, okay, how, how important is this thing to me? Is it more important than other people? Is it more important than my faith? Is it more important than my righteousness? If that's the case, then maybe take a step back and, you know, reassess the, the choices that you're making both practically and maybe, uh, philosophically. So I think that's where we'll leave it. Um, I think at some point we will do a full episode about there will be blood because there's just so much to talk about. Um, but yeah, if you haven't seen Nightcrawler, it seems weird that you'd be listening to this if you hadn't, but if you haven't seen Nightcrawler, please seek it out. I think it's a really great movie. Same with there will be blood. Go watch both of them. Um, and yeah, I think we'll leave it there. Robert, thank you so much for being on the show and thank you guys for listening and we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.